Thanks for joining me in that prayer. Uh, I want to start with a, a question, a question that I think drives a lot of our actions and a lot of our reactions. And that question is, am I safe here? When we're kids, when we're young, uh, if you have kids, you probably know this, that question comes a little late in the process. Like maybe you're, you're halfway in or maybe all the way in, and, and then it's like, is this safe? And it's like too late to actually ask that question. I had a lot of unique things in my life growing up. I grew up in rural Indiana, and my family was into auto racing. And so at my house, there were always pieces of, of race cars around and big race car tires, and there wasn't much else because we grew up in the woods and around cornfields. And so my brother and I, who's three years older than me, we would have to come up with, with things to do with what was lying around. And so we came up with this one game where I would climb into one of these giant tires and he would push me down a hill toward a woods and the goal was don't hit a tree that's the game we played things like that and uh, he was always the roller and I was always the roll E and you might ask is that safe no it's not it's terribly unsafe but as a kid you don't ask that question until you've hit multiple trees and so as an adult if I was an adult now I'd look at it be like big tire trees hill no thanks I'm good that's not safe but when you're a kid you don't ask that until later I think as you get older you start to have that question dominate a lot of your thinking and, and before your actions before you react I mean if you're driving down the road and it's a three-way three-lane highway and, and somebody's driving erratically over here, but there's lane clear over here, you'll move from the middle over. It's not safe in this lane, I'm gonna move over. Maybe you're in, the in a crowd of strangers. I think we all just look around and go, am I safe here? What's going on with these people? And <clears throat> maybe even as you get to know people, you'll start to say, how safe am I really in this group? Can I really be myself? Can I really be honest in this group? When you're looking for a house, looking to, to purchase a home or move into a neighborhood, what's one of the first questions you ask? Is it safe? Is it safe for my family to grow here? And maybe some of you experienced it even, even here today. You were dropping your kid maybe off in, in base camp, especially if you're new. You're, you're looking around and you're asking, is it safe here? Is it safe for my family? Is it safe uh, to drop my child off in, in this room? Is it safe? Traveling through Africa last week and, and thinking about Galatians 4, uh, which is really about this and, and uh, this, this question, I noticed it. I noticed how people respond to a feeling of, of safety or lack thereof. When I was going through security at, at MCO, and uh, I know you guys have never had this experience, uh, but, but the line is, is infinite long. Like that, that's how long it is. Like how many people are in front of you? Infinity. That's how many. And I know you've never experienced that because they hold all the people back until three minutes before I'm supposed to get on a plane and they just let them all get in front of me. So, but it, lines were long. And so I started to look around at people and I noticed everybody has this, this kind of stern look on their face. You, you look around at people, catch eyes with them for maybe half a second, but generally you have this stern look and you just look for a second. I think it's because people feel unsafe. It's also probably because you can only take so much most magical place in earth, uh, but, I, but I think it's also you're like merging together. And if you give that look of like, yeah, I'm nice, everybody will just flood in front of you. And so you're all nervous that like somebody's gonna, gonna give an inch and then everybody's just gonna take everything. So you just muster up a like, don't test me face and try to get through it. That's like security. Uh, I noticed it also once I got to New York before I took a 15 hour flight to Johannesburg uh, right when they said, okay, we're about to take off and the, the, you know, the engine, that engine sound like gets started and a giant puff of smoke comes out of the engine. <laughs> Am I safe here? Probably not, but everybody else seems okay. 
I made it. So two thumbs up there. Uh, and, and then there are lots of things when you're in a different culture uh, give you different levels of feeling safe or not safe. Here, here's, here's one. Uh, this is a mode of transportation in Malawi that's very popular. It's called a tuk-tuk. It's a three-wheeled motorcycle death trap thing that for $1.50 uh, you can uh, put your life in danger and, uh, and feel no sense of safety. And so if you ask, like you'll ask many times in a few minutes, am I safe here? And the answer will be no. Uh, so that's, that's something that we got to do, which, which was really fun. But now we're here, right? We're here in this place. We're in church. We're safe. We're safe in here. This is a God place. This is a Jesus shows up place. This is a, I can be, I can be honest and flawed and loved here space. At least it should be. Oftentimes it is, but there remains a threat to our safety even here. And so is it possible that there's actually just as much potential to be unsafe in here as there is to be unsafe out there? That's what Galatians 4 is about. It asks the question, inside the church, am I safe here? And Paul gets right at it, and so uh, if you have your bulletin, you can look at it. We're going to start in verse 8. If you have your Bible, you can open that up, Bible app, whatever the case may be. But he says, formerly when you didn't know God. So Paul's talking about a time before they were followers of Jesus. You were enslaved by those who by nature are not gods. But now you've come to know God, or rather to be known by God. This is actually important. I want to stop for just a second here. Notice what Paul does. He says, you found God. Rather, he found you. So he's saying, like, we may choose to, to, uh, to come to God, but it's God who sought and found you. This is Paul again in Galatians. It's not really a section in Galatians where this is left out, where he talks about, this is a churchy way of saying it, but self-righteousness. This idea, that, and he talks about it throughout Galatians, that he's attacking this living to earn God's love or living in a way that's so good that you think you have to force God's hand to love you. And he won't give any ground in any section of this letter. He just comes back to it again and again and again. And he says the reality is you have next to nothing to do with your own salvation. And so right in the middle of a thought, he has to stop and say, let me be really clear. He's like, you found God. Rather, God found you. So let's read verses 8 through 11 together with, with that context. Formerly, when you didn't know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not God's. But now you know God, or rather, are known by God. How is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You're observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my effort on you. That's harsh. <laughs> Some of the Galatians, before they were followers of Jesus and received the grace he offered, were enslaved by what Paul calls uh, miserable forces, or another way of translating is elemental principles. These are hard things to translate, gods who are not gods. Maybe the best, purest translation of that is actually demonic forces, which is like, yikes, Paul is, is really going at them. And he's saying, you, you used to be enslaved by, by things that you had to appease, in order to get what you wanted. So essentially he's saying you were worshiping lesser things than the true God, local deities that, that represented uh, uh, control of the world and hopefully safety for you if you appease them. They're God, gods of youth and power and money and success and food and shelter. So if you were a farmer, you needed to appease the, the God of the harvest and so you'd make sacrifice to that God. If you were going on a trip via the sea, you would, you would try to appease Poseidon. 
so, so that you could arrive safely. If you wanted to get married, you'd talk to Aphrodite so that you could have the safety and protection of, of, of a marriage union. Before Jesus, they were slaves to that. That, it was just constantly racing, to, like, who do I have to appease? Who do I have to, to talk to to get control, to get safety? And you may say right now at this point, you may be like, all right, I'm good. I don't have an idol worship issue. Uh, I've got the next 20 minutes to myself. I'm going to play Sudoku on my phone. No, hang in there because I think for each of us, this is still important. This is still a struggle that we have. So hang in there. In the writing of Paul's letter in that time, when, when he says, uh, you were enslaved, why are you turning back to that? Uh, slavery was a really common practice. In the Roman Empire, up to 50% of people were slaves. And so he's referencing a very common experience for the people he's talking to, but also he's calling back to the Exodus. The Exodus in the Old Testament tells a story of, of God's people. They were led by, Moshe, by Moses out of slavery in, in Egypt. In Egypt, their lives, God's people, their lives were eat, sleep, make bricks. Eat, sleep, make bricks. Eat, sleep, make bricks. And as long as you could do that, you have value. And the moment you can't do that anymore, you're worthless. And so there was a constant scoreboard in front of all of God's people, and they lived this way. But God said, I want to free you from that. And so he moves and, and, and frees the people. He separates the, the Red Sea. He provides food for them as they wander in the desert. And then he delivers them to this promised land of freedom. But the problem is, all along the way, God's people... They keep saying things like, we were better off in Egypt. Why, didn't we, why did we ever leave? Because the Egyptians were chasing them before God showed up. And the wandering in the desert was long, and they didn't know where they were going. And the food that God provided wasn't what they wanted. And when they even got to the promised land, there were people there that they said, we can't defeat these people. Why did God do this? We were better off in slavery. We were better off with that known than this dream of freedom out there. At least back there, we knew how we stacked up. Out here, it seems like God doesn't even hear us half the time. But back there, we at least knew how we stacked up. We knew if we'd done enough to be good. And what Paul is telling the Galatians, he says, don't go back there. Don't turn back to that. That's slavery. These lesser things aren't worth, <laughs> aren't worth worshiping because they aren't God. They aren't trustworthy. After you've come to Christ, don't go back to slavery. And we might think that, that these things are the issues that, that maybe are good for those that aren't sitting next to us right now, right? The ones that, are, that aren't in the church. These aren't in the church issues. These are outside of the church issues. But here's the thing, and here's why it matters for us, and here's why it's important that we lock in. The Galatians weren't turning back to local gods. They were making gods out of their religious practices, and they were choosing that slavery, it wasn't idol worship that they were enslaved to now. It was Christian religious practices. It was looking good as a follower of Jesus. That's what was enslaving them. Look at verse 10. He says, you're observing days and months and seasons and years. Paul isn't referencing old pagan practices, local idol worship. He's referencing Jewish uh, ceremonial practices, the calendar, the religious calendar. And he's saying, though you weren't Jewish, or maybe some of you were, you're, you're leaning on that, and you're saying, as long as I'm meticulously following these things, I'm forcing God's hand to love me. Essentially, Jesus saves, but my own goodness keeps me saved. The problem is with religious practices. 
things like, okay, I have to do this and I have to do this and I have to do this. They, they might actually make right living. God gives us a, a, a standard, a way to live that's actually good for us. His law is actually good for us. The problem is it just makes a really bad God. It might make for right living, but it makes a really bad God. As Tim Keller says, the basic principle of the world is that we need to save ourselves. And whether it is achievement or morality or religion or serving our family, we turn to that thing and we turn that thing into our savior, into the place where we find joy and safety, and thus we turn it into God. But those things don't save us. I remember when I became a follower of Jesus in my late teens, and I was in college, and I read the Sermon on the Mount, and I read Jesus' words that said, uh, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow has worries of its own. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Everything you need, God's got you. And I was in. I was hooked. I said, I want that. I want to be a part of Jesus' kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. I want to see love and justice and peace and mercy in our, in our neighborhoods, in our communities, in my life, in my friend's life. I, I'm in. And then that bit about the righteousness, seek his righteousness. And I said, I got it. That's, that makes sense to me. Because if I'm a student, and I was at the time, if I'm in a class, if I work really, really, really hard, the professor will notice me and give me a good grade, and I'll know I'm good enough. God must be like my professor's. If I work really, really, really hard, God will notice me and give me a good grade. Except that's not the gospel. The gospel is in 2 Corinthians, Paul says, he, Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin so that we could become his righteousness. Jesus took it on. It's not what we muster up in ourselves. It's not our self-righteousness. It's his righteousness given to us. So is it safe here? That's the question. Not if we worship lesser things. When we say Jesus alone saves and then we live in a way that says Jesus plus my own goodness saves, this place fails to be safe at that moment. When we buy into the idea that, that I'm faithfulness, I, I'm faithful, I show up every week I'm in a connect group, I give, I'm good. And as long as I keep doing those things, I'm good with God. And anybody that doesn't do those things, they're not good. If we buy into that, Paul says that isn't safety, that's slavery. And let me be clear, because this is, this is really important. I love that we're here. I think God can do incredible things through a group of people that are focused on God's word and his spirit and saying, God, would you, would you fill us up so that we can go into the world and reflect your character in the world? I think God can do incredible things through a gathering of people committed to Christ. I'm a big fan of putting yourself in the right place, and I believe this is the right place for us. And for some of us, we just basically limped in the room. Like, we don't have anything else to give. Uh, we're just, we've been beat up all week, and we're just like, I'll show up. I'm thankful that you did, because I'm a big fan of putting yourself in the right place and actually, hopefully, experiencing the grace of Jesus. But if you think, or I think, attendance here today somehow makes us more loved by God, more acceptable to him, that's a lot more like slavery than it is freedom. And according to the text, it might be that we're worshiping activities and practices and lesser things to find safety where only we can find it really in Christ. 
And I think we have this impulse to, to worship the things, to make the, the lesser thing the ultimate thing. I mean, it shows up in that impulse when uh, if somebody tells you about their genius kid and you're like, oh, I'm so happy for you and your genius kid. My genius kid is two points higher than that, right? You, put out, you pull out the scoreboard. Or at work when someone gets acclaim, gets praised for something, and you think, that's good for them, but what about me? Look at my scoreboard. I've been working so hard. Where's my recognition? And I think if we're honest, sometimes we just bring that right into our relationship with God. God, I've been faithful. I've done the work. How about a little appreciation from you? Why can't I... Why can't I, I'm putting good in, why can't I get good out, God? Why isn't everything just lining up? Why isn't it all green lights? And if you ever wonder, why can't I just get noticed? Why, why can't I get noticed for, for my effort? I keep trying and trying, and I never get noticed, so honestly, I'm thinking about just dropping the whole thing. Remember, Jesus noticed you enough to come and live and die for you. He noticed you enough to give up everything he had. Though he was a king, he became a servant before you did anything for him. You're already loved. That's the gospel. And it's the only thing that frees us from that slavery of setting up the scoreboard for yourself and for others to try to earn God's love and your own value in the process. See, what Paul is reminding the Galatians, and hopefully it's a reminder for us too, the gospel, when we understand the gospel, that Jesus loved us before we did anything for him, it changes how we see ourselves and it changes how we see others. We don't have to put the scoreboard in front of everybody. We're loved even when we're flawed. So no need to hide. No need to act. No need to earn. See, the old religion the pagan religion, another churchy term, the, pagan, the old religion, said you have to appease gods with your actions, and they're angry, so watch out. But the equally dangerous religion says I need to appease Jesus with my actions. Neither of those are gospel, and neither are safe. And so if we worship lesser things, our accomplishments, uh, our looks, our, our wealth, our, our religion, if we worship those lesser things in here, it won't lead people to Jesus. It'll lead them away. And the place becomes unsafe for all of us. So Paul then shifts gears fast. Since chapter 2, verse 15, he's been setting up this theological step-by-step uh, -step gospel of, of grace. But here in verse 12 of chapter 4, and you have to read it all together to really get this shift. He shifts dramatically. He breaks from, from this idea of a teacher giving a lesson. Now he's a friend talking to his family. And it reads like this in verse 12. I plead with you, brothers and sisters, become like me, for I became like you. You did me no wrong. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. And even though my illness was a trial to you, you didn't treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. Where then is your blessing for me now? I can testify that if you could have 
done so, you would have torn out your own eyes and given them to me. Have, you now become, have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Those people are zealous to win you over, but not, but not for God, or but not for good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may have zeal for them. It's fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good. And to be so always, not just when I am with you. My dear children, for who I am again in the pain of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. So Paul, to this point in Galatians, has called uh, the Galatians uh, fools. He's called them bewitched. He's called them dumb. He's taken them to task for, for trying to earn their salvation, which is already freely given to them. But here in verse 12, he shifts and he says, brothers and sisters. Paul says, I plead with you, brothers and sisters. I plead with you. I beg you. I entreat you. And the thing is, you don't plead or, or beg someone that, that you don't love. You don't say, I beg you, if you don't care for somebody. And you might respond, well, I, you know, if they can give me something, maybe I would, right? If, if someone's wealthy and they're like, I'm handing out $300 bills, you might be like, I would love one. Can I please have one? But the thing is, Paul has nothing to give them. He's in prison. He has nothing to gain. He just loves them. And he doesn't want them to be enslaved and make the community of Christ unsafe for people. So Paul doesn't want to win an argument and lose the church in the process. This is very similar to his conversation with Paul when he, with Peter when he confronts Peter earlier in Galatians and he has an argument with him. He doesn't want to win an argument and lose a person or lose the church. He's for them. He says, I don't want you to miss the gospel. That's what Jesus came for. See, he loves them enough to, to point out what's wrong. But also, he loves them enough to stay with them as they deal with the dissonance of that wrong thing. That's, if, you, if we live that way, if you live that way, if I live that way, that's how you become safe for someone else. And if you have children, you, you know this. Correction without encouragement, it'll just crush a kid. It'll just crush them. But encouragement without correction, it'll misguide your children as well. And so the Galatians, here's what they'd done. They'd set up a, a two-level community. They said there's an outer circle and there's an inner circle. And the outer circle, you're good, you're fine, but the inner circle is really where you want to be. And the inner circle is where you keep all the commands, where you keep all the rules, where you keep the calendar, where you do the fast, where you take the right markers, where you look the right way. He says they're eager, they're zealous, Paul says, for you to keep these ethnic and physical markers of membership. And they'll praise the ones that do, and they'll preclude the ones who don't. But Paul says, I'm just I'm begging that Christ being formed in you would free you from that. That you'd be able to overcome that. The goal, his goal, is that the Galatians live the sacrificial love of Jesus. So that they could the gospel would make them see themselves differently and see others differently as well. So Paul does correct. He's been taking them to task, but he also reminds them how they've been doing it right. He gives correction with encouragement. That's why he tells that story. He says, look, remember when I came to you? Let's just, let's just think back for a minute. When I came to you and preached the gospel, you received me. 
And, and we don't know exactly what the illness was. Some people think it was an illness that, that Paul dealt with really his whole life. Some think it was particularly had to do with his vision because he has that bit about you'd take your own eyes out, which is gross. And, um, and some people just think uh, he'd, been, he'd been beaten um, because we know in other places for preaching the gospel he was. But anyway, he shows up to the Galatians in, in really a bad state. He needed more help from them then maybe he would have wanted to, but they welcomed him anyway, and they did help him. They served him. They treated him like royalty. They cared for him. And now, yet now, after receiving the gospel, after he preaches the gospel, after they've accepted Jesus, now they start to choose sides. It's like everybody can come. Everybody can walk through the door, but then there's like the inside, and then there's like the outside. There's like the good people, the people that are like the head of the class, and then there are the ones that are just like we kind of put up with them being here. Paul says, what happened? What happened to this wonderful state where you opened your heart and you opened your doors to anybody? Paul says, I plead with you, brothers and sisters, be like me, for I became like you. It's a little bit of a clunky statement, but Paul makes it in multiple different uh, of his letters. He, at one point he says, follow me as I follow Christ. I'm going to set my eyes on Jesus. You set your eyes on Jesus. I'm going to follow Jesus. You follow Jesus as I follow Jesus. I think he's saying a similar thing here. He's begging them to walk in the freedom that he now walks in. And, and I love this about Paul. It, Paul was not perfect. Uh, and some of the things he said are still things that we have to deal with kind of culturally now, and, and it, it needs our attention. But I love Paul for, for this reason. He was so dedicated to the gospel, and you couldn't crack him. He, he would say, uh, if, if, if somebody threatened to kill him, he, he would just say uh, to to die is gain. He's like, fine, then we'll let you live. And it's like, he's like, uh, uh, the, the leave him alone is like to live as Christ. And they're like, oh, you know? So it's like, they can't, you can't crack him with anything. You, you would beat him, they would beat him and they would imprison him. Uh, and he, he would just sing praises to God in the prison and convert all the guards. And so what he's saying is, hey, there's a freedom. Not an ease, there's a freedom. Freedom from that race of having to push for your worth, of, of feeling like, like there's never enough, feeling like you always have to go after more, you always have to prove more, you always have to have the scoreboard up in front of you. There's a freedom from that. Remember, in Galatians earlier, he talked about how he was zealous. He was zealous for the law of God, and he said it's not freedom, it's slavery. He said, don't go back there. He said, I've been like you. I've been in your seat where you have the scoreboard in front of you all the time just begging God and showing it. Like, look, I'm so good. God, give me what I want. Be a vending machine, God. And he says, it's not freedom. It's slavery. Don't turn back to that. Don't turn back to a life where it's eat, sleep, make bricks. Eat, sleep, make bricks. Eat, sleep, show God you're good. Eat, sleep, show God you're good. That's not freedom. Paul was trying to remind them that he had been safe with the Galatians, and it was good. He came to them in a bad state, and they invited him in anyway, because that's what the gospel of grace does. When the gospel of grace gets lived out, the doors fly open, and you don't have to look a certain way, and you don't have to act a certain way, and we all move toward our next right step together for each other. That's what the gospel of grace does. It invites in. It doesn't close off. Last week when I was in Africa with that church, Sunday was, was amazing. The worship was great. The, uh, the singing was, was so cool. And then the kids came in. They did a skit on the Good Samaritan. And they sang. It was just a really, really fun day. And then we ate lunch together. It was really fun. But one of the things that really struck me 
was what happened on Thursday. On Thursday, they have a prayer gathering. And um, it goes like this. Someone will stand up and, and say, here are the things, here's something we need to pray about. And there'll be this list. And it's like, we're going to pray for this one thing. And then everyone there just stands up and starts walking around and praying aloud. And so this wasn't the most comfortable cultural environment for, for me. I, th- I was actually, the first time they did it, I was thinking like, what if I did that uh, next Sunday at some, I was like, everybody stand up and just start praying aloud and walk around. And you'd be like, nope. Uh, so, <laughs> so it wasn't the most comfortable environment yet, yet I was safe there. Not because I knew the culture, not, not because I understood the practices, not because I, I, I was like, oh yeah, I've done this before. I had never been in a prayer service like that before, but here's why I was safe. At one point, they were going through the list. Let's pray for the community. Let's pray for uh, somebody who's ill. Let, let's pray for uh, people, you know, th- this list. And then at one point, they said, let's be sure to remember to thank God that Gary's here. And they said, we prayed that God would bring him here safely, and he has. Let's not forget to thank him that he answered our prayer. And then everybody stood up and started praying different languages. There was kind of, there's always a rhythm to it. Like people would start and they would go and then it would crescendo down. I never knew where to jump in actually. Anyway, so I was safe there not because I was comfortable. I was safe there because I was loved. I didn't do anything, but they praised God for me. That's what the gospel of grace does. It frees us up to to notice people, to care for them, to sacrifice for them, to praise God for them. The gospel of me doesn't give space for that because you use all of your effort to make sure your scorecard looks right. You keep, to keep, to keep act, acting good and, 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 and looking good. The problem is it's a never-ending pursuit. There's always more. You could always do more. You could do more to kind of earn, and it's like, oh, as soon as you get to that target, you realize the target has moved on you. And when you choose that false God, that lesser gospel, that false gospel, you miss seeing others because the gospel of me doesn't leave time for you. But the gospel of grace frees us to sacrifice for others because we recognize we're all equal at the foot of the cross. So we can sacrifice for others so that they can know the safety that we're supposed to experience together. And here's why this is so important. So we set this point out. We need to make this place safe. Fine, but why? Here's why. Because what Jesus calls us to isn't safe. It's not. Loving the unlovely, sacrificing for people that maybe haven't earned anything to deserve it, giving hope in the face of hopelessness for the sake of the hopeless, that's not safe. That's not easy. So we need to make this place safe so that we can come together and be honest together and bring together all our meager best and pile it all up and see if God can do something amazing with it. We need this to be a safe place because what Jesus calls us to isn't. So how do we do it? How do we make this place safe? First, we remember we need the gospel. That's where we start. One of the books I read on my trip last week was uh, Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson. It is intense. It's about uh, the U.S. justice system and, and race and how he oftentimes has to defend people that have done the worst of the worst things in this world. And he says this, we're all broken by something. We've all hurt someone. We've all been hurt. We all share the condition of brokenness, even if our brokenness is not equivalent. 
but our shared brokenness connects us. Our brokenness is the source of our shared search for comfort and meaning and healing. And even into that shared brokenness, Jesus showed up. We should remember we don't have to have a scoreboard to prove that we are lovely. Jesus already came and loved us. We should remember we need the gospel. And we should remember that everyone needs the gospel, and so it has to matter how we respond to that love. It has to. With the grace we've been given, number two, the second way we make this place safe, with the grace we've been given, we commit to live the gospel of grace for others. There's no second-class citizens. There's no first-class citizens. There's just a bunch of people loved by Jesus trying to figure it out. And so it shows up making space for others, committing to the gospel of grace for others. It shows up at the handshake at the door. It shows the handing of the coffee. It shows in the smile when, when, when an apprehensive parent drops a kid off in, in base camp. It shows up when we scoot in or scoot over for others. It, it shows up when we sit in connect groups and we let people be honest, really, really honest. And it shows up in us being honest about where we've chosen scoreboard Christianity over Jesus and turning from slavery to safety. Remember, we need the gospel and live the gospel of grace for others. That's how we make this place safe. So for some of us this week, there's an action step portion as we close. For some of us this week, we need to put down the scorecard. Put down the scoreboard. Just put it down. Stop trying to force God's hand to love you. He already loves you. Be free. It's for freedom that Christ set us free. And then we have the freedom to look around and say, what's the need in the world? I don't have to worry about the gospel of me. I can actually worry about the gospel of grace. I can actually think about the gospel of grace for others. And so for others of us, it's, it's to be bold and courageous and in inviting someone in, into our lives, into this place, who deserves to know what it is to be safe. And there are so many people that look like they have it all together in our lives that have no idea what it's like to actually feel safe. Wouldn't it be great if they did here? The safety we need is found in a God who loves us before we did anything good for him. And there's absolute freedom in that and there's challenge in the fact that he's invited us to be a messenger of that grace. So that should mean that this is a safe place because we're safe people who risk big to care for others. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for uh, your word. Thank you for your challenge. Thank you for what I got to see last week. They got to see your gospel lived and, and how that changes how we see others and how we serve others. Thank you for the timeliness of this scripture. And I pray that as we, as a people, pursue what you have called us to, we would never, ever trade in safety for slavery, that we would never get it confused that it's like, yes, God, you've called us to be your witness in this world, and so I'll, 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 I'll do it. And every time I do it, I'm good. And every time I don't do it, I'm not good. God, just free us from that. Let us be children who, who 
uh, abound in joy at getting to be about your work, your business in this world. You could do it without us, God, but you choose to invite us in. Let us take off whatever shackles hold us back from that so that we can run and leap and bound with joy at what we get to be a part of with you. And I pray that this place would be safe for every single person in this room and every single person not in this room who might walk through those doors. God, I pray that our doors would be open here. That people that are a mess, people that that don't have it all together could come here and know your grace and see your goodness. And we pray this in the powerful and redemptive name of Jesus. Amen.